Dougal's, do you see Skippy's points? And do you find yourself becoming more of a value guy? And Skippy, do you find yourself becoming more of a momentum guy? I thought that was an interesting one. And for me, it's definitely a resounding no. <laughs> I see how you are, though. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Skippy, Skippy. Dougals, what's happening? So Where are, where are you these I days, man? Positive feedback. I can't give away my whereabouts. I'm like, where's Waldo, man? man I just want to I make might... sure you haven't been kidnapped. Uh, it's possible. I might be in the second largest state in the union. Rhode Island. Perfect. <laughs> oh, actually, I was doing some Wikipedia research to have a quiz for you on my current location. And it said second largest, but now that throws me for a loop because clearly the largest is Alaska. Yep. So this would mean that Texas is larger than California, which I guess makes sense. But I thought that was pretty close. Well, like, you know, different shapes. You know what I mean? Makes it all, all difficult for the visuals, but I'm pretty sure that's true, especially if Wikipedia said it. So let's just roll with it. So listen, I got tons of positive feedback on the interview with Adam. And I think what that probably means is people like hearing other people talk more than they like hearing us talk. I'm going to go with, they like the combination that makes me, that makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> you got a 43 on your shirt today. What's what's up with that? Yeah. There's an organization called mission 43 in Idaho. Um, that works with uh, veterans um, to help them in a number of different capacities, uh, get jobs, um, further their education, stuff like that. Uh, and that's what this that's what this shirt's all about. Mission 43. Love it, man. Yeah. Love it. So listen, there's so much to talk about today. You want to kick us off with a little history lesson? Yeah, sure. Um, so for those that do not know, um, about 100 years ago, when I say about, I mean 100 years ago as of Monday, um, Memorial Day, there was there was a, a terrible incident incident that is often called the Tulsa massacre that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I'm going to give you give you a little history lesson on it, because it's important for us to to understand what has happened in the past so we can prevent these things in the future and also just to understand perspective. Um, and and Skippy, I think this this also for me ties a lot into something that we've brought up frequently in the podcast around participation in the capital markets and yeah. why in some circumstances, there are marginalized groups or just different groups um, that may not feel as comfortable participating, uh, whether that's because of uh, the, the nature of how some things are kind of confusing, whether it's because of access, but sometimes it's also because it seems like the system is rigged against them. Um, and that, yeah. that perception uh, can, can make it hard for some folks to get in. So, so let, me, uh, let me drop a little bit um, and then we can chat about it if you want and see where we go from there, but let me drop some knowledge. So Tulsa, Oklahoma, this was a place that back in the early 20th century, a number of, of black individuals came to in order to basically establish like an economic stronghold uh, for African-Americans. Um, and so this was if you if you go a little bit further back in the early 20th century, right, you have the Civil War ending. Um, and then you have the, the exodus of black folks from from slavery in the U.S. and just trying to figure out where in America they could potentially fit. And so uh, there's a place called Greenwood that's. Um, neighborhood of Tulsa that a lot of blacks ended up settling into and created what what is often called Black Wall Street. 
Uh, and Black Wall Street is not called that necessarily because it had you know, a stock market or anything of that nature. It was just called Black Wall Street because Wall Street's where wealth was created. And this is where a lot of entrepreneurialism happened uh, among the Black community. So people would have Black barber shops, right? Um, people would have their, their law firm or you know, doctor's office set up. And so it was a, a microcosm of what people wanted to create, right, more broadly. Um, and this isn't the only place in the U.S. this happened, but um, but it, because of the events that unfolded afterwards, um, it became it became a pretty famous one. Um, and so basically what happened was the Blacks established their stronghold. And then um, there was, as often happens, there was an incident, right, that effectively uh, set off a night of just terror. Um, so during the day, uh, there was a, a Black boy uh, who, who was working in a department store in the elevator. Um, a white woman got into the elevator. It's still unclear. Um, I've read a, like a number of historical accounts and read books uh, about this, but it's still unclear exactly what happened in that elevator. Um, but the woman screamed. Um, and this woman screaming led to people uh, basically saying like, this black man assaulted the woman um, and the black man got arrested. And so he was taken to jail and the, the white residents of Tulsa said, there was a woman assaulted, we have to make sure that there's justice effectively. And so this was a time where lynchings, et cetera, were very popular. And so they, they started um, crowding around, uh, the white residents of Tulsa started crowding around the jail cell. And the, the sheriff, um, he, he said like, no one's, no one's getting to him. And so he basically barricaded um, this, this black man in, in the jail so no one could get there. And so crowds started forming outside the jail cell. Um, Black crowds started forming outside the jail cell, right? And so this is, as you can often see, this is one of those circumstances that like one small thing, right, can then like lead to um, to something big and someone fired a shot, right? Uh, and so basically then it, it just, it turned into this, um, this war effectively, this mini war. Uh, and so people went from, they went from the jail cell to then go back to Greenwood, which was this economic stronghold and just started burning the whole place. Uh, and so they burned houses, they burned businesses. Um, and so it was millions and millions of dollars of, of destruction from an economic standpoint that happened. But then also from a social perspective, they effectively like burned down the black community um, wholly. Uh, and so black people started having to, they were living in, it was kind of like, a, you know, what happened in New Orleans, like, think about that, like, they were, they were living in, like, high school gymnasiums, you know, etc, like, wherever they could. Um, but their entire economic, like, livelihoods uh, were gone. Um, and, and so, I mean, I, that was a very short version to give you some of the, like us out of the burning, some of the things that happened where there were, um, planes started arriving from like the national guard. Um, and it's unclear exactly what was, what was going on there, but some accounts say that they were throwing Molotov cocktails outside the window. It, it just became like a, like wow. a crazy, crazy, uh, circumstance. Right. And so, but, if, but the end result was that, uh, the entire like black wall street was gone. Um, and so as, as people think about uh, participation in the markets today, as people think about uh, the injustices that people feel and often why they don't feel welcome and why, why systems might be rigged, it's because there are times like this, and this was not the only occasion that something like this happened during that time, but there, there's more written about this one. Uh, but there are occasions where people, um, and I'll, I'll, for this circumstance, I'll say Black people in particular, felt like they got something and then it was yeah. just taken away. Um, and there were, from anything I've read, there weren't. Uh, any convictions that ever came from this. Um, there, there weren't reparations for a very long period of time, but I feel like recently there may have been a couple, 
a couple of relatively small things that have been done like like 100 years later. Um, but yeah. that's the occurrence. Yeah. So 100 years ago on uh, on Monday, uh, it was May 31st of 1921 when this happened. This is uh, it's so interesting. It's amazing how little of that I actually knew. I was aware of the event. Um, a couple of things that I just feel stupid about. One, I thought it was more of a financial center simply because of the name of Black Wall Street. I did see a graphic this week. I think it's in the Wall Street Journal that like walks you down the lane and kind of shows the lawyer's offices and the barbershop and the theater and everything else. But I really appreciate that history lesson. It's so crazy. Um, well, crazy is the wrong word. I don't know what the right word is, but it's amazing how events like that can set the affected group back significantly. Um, you know, I used to live over in Ireland, right? And that's a, an oppressed uh, party in Europe, for sure, or an oppressed country. Yep. And there was a time, um, I hope I articulate this correctly, where Dublin and London were effectively um, similar sized cities. And if you've traveled over there recently, you know that Dublin is a much smaller town than London. And I think you can attribute a lot of that to some of the things that happened in the 1800s and the, the way that that city's growth was stunted. And I think you could say in a similar way, like the Tulsa um, probably as a city, but also the um, African-American part of Tulsa had their growth stunted significantly economically. Like it's, I just really appreciate um, you diving into it because I think it's important and it's kind of amazing how little is talked about. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And the um, there was one account uh, that I that I read one, one book that I read about this that basically went back to the newspapers at the time and followed the the history of this from the lens of the papers that were writing about it. And I mean, Tulsa effectively there was a combination of uh, fear and shame that came from it, and so it was like hidden uh, for a while. Exactly what happened, and people were were denying. Uh, that it occurred. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, economically, things like this um, can just bring things to a halt. And, and that's fueled also by the psychological changes that come from it, right? If you, if you get to a point, and, and I've read some other things like this that have nothing to do with uh, Tulsa, well, have nothing directly to do with Tulsa. But if you believe that if you put your money into a system, that that system can just take it, yeah, then it's hard to to participate. And I think people that are, you know, a couple generations back, they still have a lot of this ingrained in their brain, right? Like I give money to a bank, that bank can do whatever they want with it. It doesn't necessarily come back um, is, is, uh, is important for us to think about when we're thinking about uh, how to increase market participation. Well, so it's um, the debate around money is it's hot and heavy right now as it as people talk about crypto. Right. And so like the key components are money. Let's see if I can remember all three. Um, basically one is trust, two is liquidity, and the third is escaping me at the moment. But that trust component you're talking about, it's a, it's a critical, critical thing to play the game. If you don't trust the game, you, you're not even going to get in. And, um, some of that is happening in the Bitcoin world right now. People are saying, look at how much, um, money the U S government is printing or the Venezuelan government or whatever the case may be. And so they don't trust the system, which means they're not a participant in the system. Thank you for uh, appreciate giving me the space to talk about that, Skippy. Um, it's a it, it's important for all of us to recognize history in a number of different ways. And I'm yeah, 
grateful uh, to be able to, to, to shine some light on this often forgotten time. Oh yeah. Um, I love it, man. Keep it coming. I, I wish I was more knowledgeable about it. I think, how about uh, that one book you mentioned that tracks the newspaper articles? Do you know that off the top of your head? I'd like to dig in a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think that I'm pretty sure that one was Tulsa 1921 is what that one is called. Okay. Um, I can find you, I can send you over a few titles. Uh, there's one called the burning black wall street, but I think that one's Tulsa 1921. Yeah. I feel like it's important for me to know more about this. Um, so definitely good. Well, I know it's tough to transition from that. Uh, that's a pretty deep topic, but I, I do, um, I do really appreciate it. You'd ready to go back to our normal juvenile humor here. Let's dive into the fishbowl. <laughs> All right. Where do you want to start? Well, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of good stuff to talk about. Uh, you dive in. Pick one out at random. I want to talk real estate for a second. All right. So I got lots of responses back when Dougal's was shopping for a house. It seemed to be a, a fun issue for the listeners. And uh, the CEO of Redfin had a tweet storm this week that I just think is incredible. So I'm going to go through. I'll hit like um, 10 things from that, Dougal's. And then I just want your reaction. And we'll chat through it, right? The, the first story in this is a, a bidding war in Bethesda, Maryland, where the, the potential purchaser offered to name her child after the seller um, simply to win the bid. And guess what? She lost. Um, oh, currently, Yeah. So, so one, this is interesting. I feel bad for this kid. I mean, because obviously no one wants the kid. Nobody wants the kid. The, you, know, you know what I mean? And the kid is homeless, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but that's crazy. We talked about me making a Pixar film. It, and it worked, man. You were like, you were so lucky you were three months ahead of this. So nationwide, I talked to a realtor friend uh, locally. This has been true in Colorado or parts of Colorado for a while. But nationwide, there's more realtors than there are listings. Um, inventory is down 37%. What is that? Like, typical. How does that even make any sense? It doesn't make any sense, man. I, on that one specifically, I think that means that the hurdle to become a realtor is pretty uh, low. And so a bunch of people get their license and then they realize actually how hard it is uh, to get clients. It's like the sales component has got to be hard, right? Yeah. It, it makes me think uh, like so much about, I mean, this is obvious, right? But if you go back 13 years, a little more, 15 years, right? Back to the 2006, 2007, 2008 time period and where everyone's becoming a realtor there, there are things that are different this time around. Like, you know, we've seen stuff around uh, like how the credit ratings of people going to get houses are higher. I wonder if that's still true or if at this point it's actually gotten much closer to it's just everything is crazy. Do you yeah, know? there was... Um... The credit worthiness of buyers, this was like two months ago in the Wall Street Journal, is significantly different than it was in, say, 2006, 2007, and significantly better. So that's interesting in terms of, it's like inventories just aren't where they need to be. It seems like the purchases that are happening are still largely cash. Um, it's not like the 0% down, or at least not to the same extent. Um, but man, home prices are crazy. So. Uh, we, we've talked about this a little. So lumber prices are up 300%. I've been told that that adds um, about $35,000 to the cost of new homes. And that in a lot of cases, people wow. won't even give you an estimate for how much your build will cost because lumber prices have been so volatile that they don't want to be off by 
20 grand because they feel like they can't predict where it's going. That is crazy. And I, I can't remember what the average price of a home is, but 35 grand has got to be somewhere in the 10 to 15%, maybe 10 to 20% increase of the average price of a home in the US. Yeah, you know, things have been changing so rapidly that I don't know. I mean, the median is the right metric there because those the large yeah, $10 yeah. million dollar homes skew the average, but I, it used to be in the range of 300K nationwide, I think. Um, I'll, I can do some follow-up research here. It's just, it's just crazy. So um, here's the last thing I'd throw out from this tweet storm. Um, the average housing budget for an out-of-towner moving to Nashville, and Nashville is just an example city here, was 720K. And the average home budget for a local Nashvilleian, I made that up, that's probably not a thing, was 485K. So you see this, you know, the COVID uh, movement that has happened where people are moving to these smaller um, towns with like great nature and better schools than your New York City or your San Francisco's, right? And the people show up on an entirely different playing field in terms of a budget. And then that just messes with that entire local real estate economy and that cascades down from there. It's a really interesting problem or challenge. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I just find yeah. it fascinating. Yeah. And it, that, uh, that fact, it takes me to one of the, the tweets of that the tweet storm from uh, Glenn Kalman that said for low tax states, four people move in for every one who leaves. So a few examples that he gave was for Texas, the ratio is five to one for Florida, it's seven to one. Um, and so if you, if you put that in that fact in with the what you just stated around the difference in home prices, I mean, it's you have more people coming in that are flooding your market. Uh, and yeah, that's a, that's a tough scenario for locals. Yeah, man. Why do you think I'm in Texas right now? Just oh, oh, are you, <laughs> just are you one of the five? Are you one of the five? Hey, you just gave me a great idea, man. No state tax. And have you seen how cheap things are down here? Holy cow. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Tell, let me know how many Monopoly homes get that Baltic. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, you know what my budget is down here? Holy cow. I'm like so rich. Um, <laughs> all right. What else is in the fishbowl for you? I read this article that I, I think is really interesting and could use some unpacking called The Economy is Booming, Why Don't Firms Believe It? Uh, written by Joe Weisenthal. What the, to give you the, the gist of what Joe's writing about here is he's looking at the, the, uh, influent, the influential loop, I'll call it, between investment and consumption. So investment in the economy and consumption in the economy. Uh, and some of this, when when laid out, can feel kind of obvious, but I think that but there's some interesting insights that he pulls out. So what he says is that you have to believe in future profits in order for a business to invest in something, right? I think that's the obvious piece. I'm not going to invest in something today if I don't believe I'm going to be able to make money from it tomorrow. So that piece makes sense. He said, in reality, what ends up occurring is that people look at what's happening today and they'll look at what's happened in the past in order to predict the future. And so belief in, uh, in future profits might be skewed by what's, what's happened recently. And so that could decrease or increase investment today. And specifically what he's saying is happening right now, which gets back to the title of the article, is that consumption is going cray. And right? he's like, people are buying so much more than what 
a year ago, we would have believed they were buying, but firms aren't investing because they don't believe that this is going to continue. They don't believe this is, they believe this is just a blip, right? And a lot of that uh, he's saying is because of the last decade where US GDP hasn't really grown very quickly, right, at all over the last decade. And he's saying that firms say, look, we've been in a decade of low demand. This surge in demand, I don't believe is going to last. And so therefore I'm not going to invest. And if they don't invest, what that means is they end up not hiring as many people. If they don't hire as many people, then that means that that there is lower income, which means consumption goes down. And so you could end up feeding into like a doom loop, right? If if they don't invest along with consumption. Uh, and the take, this is where you start to get into, you know, politics, but his take is we need to create policy that that um, that makes firms believe, right? That this demand's gonna last. Yeah. You can you can take the solution for whatever you want. But I, I think that that loop is really interesting and in the belief in what's gonna happen in the future uh, and how that feeds into what firms do today. Yeah, so I went through this article and um, I feel like I need to go through it three more times before I fully, before everything clicks with me. But generally this, um, this like belief cycle or this non-belief cycle totally makes sense, right? And I actually come back to government spending. People that advocate for increased government spending often say, well, like, we'll just grow our way out of the deficit that we are creating. And, and you could say that with like the debt cycle and uh, personal finance in some ways too. Like if you're so-called, I hate this term, but like spending money to make money, right? Um, then eventually you make money to pay off your debt and everything's great. Um, what's so interesting right now, you know, every time I see Biden's latest uh, trillion dollar spending something, because there's something every week, you I get that. a little, <laughs> it's just so much money, man. I don't feel like, he even knows what a trillion dollars is. <laughs> He's just throwing it around. Um, I'm not hating on Biden, but I think I understand the business perspective to go, whoa, whoa, you know what we just went through? Do you remember what March 2020 was like? Like, we thought our businesses were ending and the world was ending. And now everyone's ready to just forget that and hire like crazy and spend like crazy. Like, I think having a decent memory of, I wouldn't even call that a long-term, like that's a short-term, we're talking 15 months ago, is reasonable here. But I also understand that that doesn't allow for the jubilant recovery that maybe everyone wants. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it takes to to get capbacks up. I mean, that's it's significant for a business to, to do, right? And you can't just willy-nilly like ramp up um, on a whim. And so, yeah, it's a... It, it, it's tough. Um, and I, and I agree with the, the short term or what, I don't even know what is 15 months is that medium term. I don't know when something goes from short to medium to long, but that was not yeah. that long ago, man. I still feel the pain right now. Well, so think, just think of it from a business perspective. I mean, let's pretend I'm a CEO of a fortune 500 company. Even if I have no COVID concerns, I have concerns about the throb, the crazy valuations of the U S stock market. I have, I think I still have a lot of concerns. I think if the COVID blip never happened, people would be concerned about where we were heading 15 months later, simply because it just felt like the economy was going up and to the right forever. And we know that's not how it works. There's a recession looming and that recession never materialized because of COVID but it's going to materialize because of some other reason that we don't know. So I would be cautious if I'm in that position. And I don't know the 
uh, policy could pull me out of it. What's interesting is, and we'll never know, you know, what this would have turned into. But if you go back to last January, I remember at that time, the economic data started to seem like it was going to turn, right? Manufacturing um, data started looking at a decrease, right? We, we never saw the end of that story, but it was yeah. like the, the, the beginnings of, right? Um, and also at the time, we were, we were trying to start a war with Iran, <laughs> right, as, as a nation. So who knows what would have turned out there? It's, it, it's, it's really fascinating, like, that there, there was this place that we could have gone to, right? But, it, but to your point, um, never really happened. Um, and as we talked about, I can't remember if this was last week um, or, but sometime recently we were talking about how it was like when, when the markets get to a point where they are so inflated, they can stay there for a bit until like the one thing kind of goes wrong, right? And, and when you get to the point of ultimate fragility, that's when like a thing can, can take it all down. I, I think that that's, that's in some businesses, I'm sure that that's what they're waiting for. And because it takes so long to ramp stuff up, Right, I think it can be hard for them to throw in capex. the The thing that might happen here, right? Because this is what happens with you brought up, like even with mutual funds, right? Like, uh, you'll you'll watch the mutual fund for like three years, and you go, "It's been performing well for three years." Then you get in, right? And it yeah. happens with individual stocks and everything too. Businesses may sit back and be like, "Look, we don't want to invest yet, right? We don't invest yet because what if this thing isn't real?" Then there comes a point where demand, like, starts running rampant for too long. That might even be like six months. Right. And they're like, okay, we have to, like, we have to be a part of this. And that might be the point, right. Where, where that's the pinnacle, you don't know, but, uh, but that would, that would exacerbate financial situation for businesses. If they basically wait to have their supreme investment until the peak of demand happens. And then by the time the investments there, demand isn't there anymore. And so now they're spending and you don't have the revenue to come in. Um, I don't want to paint a, a doom and gloom, but like, that that's what I hope doesn't happen. No, what's interesting though is like uh, Sir John Templeton. I think this is from William's Green Book. Uh, talked about investing at the the moment of greatest pessimism and like the bubble popping at the moment of greatest op optimism. What's funny about this article, Dougals, is it's basically saying we're not at the moment of most optimism now. You know, like there's still yeah. people holding back, which is maybe a good sign. Um, but we don't know how it's going to end and I'm not going to forecast it. I, I think it's a fascinating thought experiment and so much of the capitalistic society is now built on this belief about the future prospects. And I think that's a feature, not a bug, but it's also kind of scary at times. Fully agree. Fully agree. I think, I think it's interesting. And this, as we've talked about many times, this movie is going to be very interesting to watch. Oh, Definitely. I want to I want to hop into your fishbowl and talk about this investment hypothesis. Man, I just want to throw this out. We don't give advice on the show, um, but my rebalance is coming up, and for just a brief moment, man, West Fraser Timber Company uh, popped on the screen, and I started doing some digging. I'd say I'm ninety percent away the way through my research. I've uh, been through the 10K briefly. This thing is so crazy, man. So it's uh, it was screening. It actually just bumped over where it's not screening as a deep value stock, but it's right in the sweet spot here. But we all know what's happened with timber prices in the um, last yes. year. This thing yes, yes, yes. is 
just going crazy in the like the last six months. So it's it's a momentum and a value stock right now, which is rare to find in in the devalue world. Uh, the ticker is WFG. Um, it's based in Vancouver, and nothing exciting happening here, man. It's just like a timber company. They make OSB board and and other things. Um, but I was blown away and I'm a little excited about it. So let me finish my research, but I wanted to mention that to the listeners because it feels a little too good to be true, which is why I'm like double and triple checking everything. Cause I'm like, what, this is a hot space. Commodity prices are up. Everything's great. Now the flip side of that is like commodity prices have already gone up so much that I feel like when lumber crashes, I just said lumber was up 300% when it goes back down to earth and crashes 200%. Like, what does that mean for the performance of the stock? It might just get caught in that commodity pricing problem. I mean, I think we all know it will. Yeah. And so that has me a little concerned about the hypothesis. But then again, solid cash on hand, almost no debt, um, consistent profits over more than a decade. There's a lot to like about this company. So um, I'm certainly intrigued by it. And that was kind of the funnest thing that happened this week. On the investment front, let me uh, pull up some numbers here. Gosh, there's one other um, mutual fund right now that I just love. And it's an emerging market shareholder yield fund um, that comes out of Med Faber's shop. It's uh, EYLD, if anyone's interested in the ticker. I'm doing some research on this too, but I want to show you uh, I want to read you a few metrics on this, Douglas. Okay, so for this emerging market shareholder yield fund, here's some current stats. Uh, average price to earning ratio is of the holdings, 7.6. Average price to book, 1.3. Average price to sales, 0.6. And average price to free cash flow of 4.99. Dividend yield of 5.8. Um, this goes back to some research wow. I was doing on emerging markets and a podcast I would recommend on Meb Faber's show with Rob Arnott, um, the founder of Research Affiliates, um, really smart guy. And they dove significantly in to talk about how the only value they're seeing, not the only, but the best value they're seeing is with UK deep value stocks. And I have some research happening there. And then the emerging market stuff. So I looked at a bunch of emerging market ETFs and mutual funds. And man, I, it's very rare to see stats like this. This is a slam dunk. And this is certainly something that will um, make my next rebalance. Um, don't, don't, oh, God. Coming in with slam dunks. Don't, don't come in with slam. I will mutumbo you. We were talking about the shinger fake, you know, before. Don't even, don't come here with your, your slam dunks. Hey. I'm just putting something down on the audio for our international listeners so you can make fun of me in a year. All right. I agree. <laughs> can I take can I take the slam dunk back? I'll tell you, um, it seems those stats are crazy. Let's just say it's really, really cheap. Now, yeah, very cheap. Listen, I've been um I've been through this, oh, gosh, for more than a decade. And often really, really cheap doesn't mean great performance. Really, really cheap means a year or two of it getting even cheaper and you beating your head against the wall. So that's probably what's likely to happen here. But, you know, I've been scouring the U.S. markets without finding much. And it's fun to see a timber company that piques my interest and find some stuff in the emerging markets that is at least really, really cheap. The 
Um, this shift over to value, I think, is interesting. I, the international U.S. situation is interesting. It, dude, it's just a it's this what a game we're playing right now. But I'll be interested to see what happens. Yeah, me too. Um, then the other thing, I'll just mention this briefly. So Jason Swag, uh, Wall Street Journal, had a, what I think is an awesome article this week because he's filling a gap. And he talks about these I-bonds. Uh, you can go to treasurydirect.gov. But basically, there's a inflation-protected bond out there, um, kind of a loophole in the government system that currently uh, is returning 3.5%. It's worth checking out. Uh, I've had definitely people reach out trying to find good ways to get safe returns, which is really tough to come by right now. So um, I haven't fully researched it. It's not a recommendation, but I do trust Jason. And um, if you're looking for some of that, I'd encourage you to go to treasurydirect.gov and do some of your own research there. Thanks for dropping that, man. I really, really, really want to hear about the smart contract thoughts that you got. I think this could be fascinating. Yeah, so um, I continue to have a very, very small investment in crypto. Um, but I do think it's like the hottest or the most interesting space right now. Um, I read an article about Mark Cuban and his fascination with crypto and uh, what he pitches in this article. You know, for those who don't know, he's the founder of the Dallas Mavericks. He sold uh, broadcast.com, like right at, I think it was 99 Dougals, um, for a couple billion bucks to, was it AOL? No, Yahoo. No, I can't remember who it was. I don't think it was AOL though. I'll look it up. One right of now. those. And, and basically he he knew it was a bubble. So he sold it. He hedged his investment. He turned that into a purchase of the Dallas Mavericks, which is crazy because I'm like blocks away from the Dallas Mavericks stadium right now. So he's going, people don't even understand crypto right now. And what he seems to be fascinated with is the smart contracts piece. Um, again, if the listeners don't know, basically what that means is you can code in criteria for a, a sale or a purchase or whatever else. So he's saying um, he buys weather insurance for the Mavericks. And the reason he buys weather insurance is because he might expect a sold out stadium. And that sold out stadium, I'm just making up random numbers here. That sold out stadium might be worth um, $2 million to him. And if there's a snowstorm in Dallas, which is something that's really, really rare, he's not going to get a sold out stadium. And so that might cost him a million bucks. So he buys weather insurance that says, if there's a snowstorm in Dallas, I want some sort of compensation to account for this snowstorm that uh, impacted my business revenues. Did I do an okay job of explaining that, Douglas? Because I think that's core to this concept. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. And, and quick, quick fact before we go ahead. A Yahoo bought broadcast.com for 5.7 billion. Yeah. yeah. And but it yeah, was that, that's basically good for smart contracts. Yeah. Um, so this really, to me, um, something clicked this week and I just want your take on it. Doodles. I've, there's been talk for years and years and years about the problem with equity markets is the short-term nature and the fact that these assets are so liquid and you can just, you know, like you just have a psychological event. Maybe you didn't get great sleep last night, or maybe you're in a fight with your girlfriend, or maybe it's just the markets are down 30% and you're freaking out. So when you buy the thing, your thought was, 
oh, I love this investment and I'm going to hold it for 10 years. And then the roller coaster ride of psychology, we talked about this with Adam, we talked about this a ton on the show, is something where it makes it really hard to carry out your initial investment hypothesis, especially as it relates to time frame. Well, you can put a blockchain on anything and there's no reason why. And I actually expect this to happen probably within the next five years. You couldn't basically code people's original investment hypothesis. And let's just talk about time frame because that's an easy one. So I might buy this timber company and I might say, I want to hold this thing at least for two years, no matter what. On blockchain with a smart contract and it'd probably be backed by uh, Ethereum, I could code that in. I could make this purchase and I could make it so it was impossible for me to sell. This would be illiquid until a certain time frame expires. What do you think about that crazy idea of mine? So I think it's it's like the uh, putting the a timer on the cookie jar, you know, type situation where you basically say after 8 p.m., like I can't open this cookie jar. Have you seen those where they have they have those? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, so I think I think conceptually it makes a lot of sense where the disconnect is, is that there's a significant assumption behind what you're saying that says that there is a clear hypothesis from the individual that's buying. And that I think is what's absent. Uh, good point. So most people aren't aware that this, the, the timer on the cookie jar would actually, in most cases, improve their investor performance rather than hinder it uh, because we're, we're supposed to trust our human judgment, right? Fidelity does this thing right now. It's not on blockchain, it's not smart contracts where the fees they charge on a certain fund drop as your holding period increases. So if you hold the fund for less than a year, it might be like half a percent. If you hold it for two years, it's like 0.25. If you hold it for 10 years, it's no fee. Um, there seems to be people playing around with this space. But yeah, my product market fit here is probably missing, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting conceptually, but yeah, but I think that the, the, the mass retail market couldn't benefit um, from anything like this, at least not directly, but but it's worth pulling that string a little bit more because there's something interesting in it. I think here's what I'd ask the listeners and maybe we'll debate this next week. But if you have an idea as to how we, or not necessarily we, how you could code in some logic to an investment you make, whether it's time frame, price points, whatever the case may be, uh, that could help the investor experience, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this. So you can hit us up at Skippy Doogles on Twitter or skippydoogles at gmail.com with thoughts on how we do this. And Doogles, actually, I know we're running out of time, but I just realized we have listener mail that we didn't get to. Should we kick that to another episode? No, fire it off. Well, so there's two things. One, um, I think is our boy Colin on Twitter talked about um, the, the question that happens all the time, which is, thoughts on if you pay your house off early um and then i got another one doogles this one's quicker and i'm doing a, i'll do a poor job paraphrasing but it was effectively like hey as you guys have debated for a half year momentum style value style do you find yourselves like moving closer you know doogles do you see skippy's points and do you find yourself becoming more of a value guy and skippy do you find yourself becoming more of a momentum guy I thought that was an interesting one. And for me, it's definitely a resounding no. <laughs> I see how you are, though. I see how you are. I think we can well, hit both of those. 
Well, let's let me finish on the last one. Like the thing I've really enjoyed about debating with someone who has a different philosophy than me, but a sound philosophy is I think this is just really rare. I don't hear many investing podcasts where it's like people with um, fairly opposite views on a lot of things, you know, hit heads every week and, and kind of uh Trying, I definitely respect your opinion. I haven't changed my investing style really at all, but I I learn something new all the time, and I love it. Yeah, I'm I'm in a similar boat. I think there's so in the you know we've talked about the the model portfolio I have and the other portfolio I have, um, the other whatever lottery ticket stock whatever portfolio is closer to value than it is to momentum, but it's still not. I mean I. I will not end up researching um, companies and looking at their like cash on hand, like deeply cash per share and level of debt. I do it like briefly there. Yeah. So they're more value, but they're not, but it's not the same. There's still like some kind of momentum aspect. It's just my investor personality, like won't get there, which has nothing. And I think this is part of what you were saying. It has nothing to do with the soundness of the philosophy. It's not about the belief in the philosophy or not. It's just, it's not my match. Yeah. And I, gosh, there's some deep wisdom in that. Like, I, I feel like you're kind of born with an investing style. And so if you find yourself uh, moving between value, momentum, growth, whatever else, uh, trend following, who knows what else, uh, speculating, like you probably just haven't found your right fit in the investing world yet because i think you and i have kind of found our niche and we're probably going to stay there but that doesn't mean it's not fun to chat exactly exactly that's what i believe so cool that, that's a good question though i like that one all right what do you think about paying off house yeah so i i think with the house it depends on a number of, of scenarios in my mind and i'll give it a couple quick hits like one is what's your current financial situation if it's if it and what's your um financial i'll call it like mindset, right? The reason I bring up the mindset piece is because for some people, it can just feel better to not have debt. And yes. if not having debt, like frees up mental bandwidth for you to focus on other things, whether that be work, life, family, you know, et cetera, then it, it could be worthwhile. Um, the financial situation is if you are, if you're overextending, I should say not, not from a debt perspective, but from a cash, like if you're overspending or like making yourself so tight from a cash perspective to pay off the house, then that can be similarly put you in an interesting mindset. The last piece that I'll bring up, and this isn't fully comprehensive, but just what I think about is what's your interest rate and what's your, what I'd say confident rate of return. Um, because if you're sitting right now, if you're sitting on a, let's call it a 3%-ish like interest rate, that changes the game like pretty materially um, on how quickly you want to pay that off. Um, and so uh, th those are like the three big areas that I think about what's your current financial situation. And is it, are you just spreading yourself thin, right? And by spending a lot of cash um, on the house right now, uh, second piece is mentally, like what makes you feel good or bad with regard to level of debt uh, that you have. And then, and then third is looking at the actual unit economics of what's your current interest rate and what's your confident, what I call your confident rate of return go forward. Yeah, you really nailed it. I love this conversation. If anyone wants to call me and talk for an hour plus, I will happily do it. I think this is one of the, the core conversations of like our personal finance lives. What Dougal's just nailed there is exactly right. Like the Ramsey 
um, advice here of just pay off your house without doing any math or any thinking, I think it's the wrong approach. That does not mean that paying off your house is not a good idea. And in a lot of cases it is. It's such an interesting world because uh, a 3% interest rate is like dirt cheap. I mean, you go back 20 years, the US government had never borrowed at 3% and now your average homeowner can. So I like to take advantage of that. But also we've talked about this a bunch. What's the expected return over 10 years of a 60-40 portfolio, Dougals? It's less than 3% right now. So historically, if you had a 3% house interest rate, it almost always made sense to pay off your, or to not pay off your house because that was basically free uh, money. Now, if you're not investing in emerging markets like, like I am, your expected rate of return might be less than 3%. So you got to do that math. Um, and then you got to make a decision that's right for you because the, the peace of mind that comes with being debt-free is a huge deal. Really, really good. Yeah. I, let me, let me get, this is not a house. It's a smaller, um, smaller balance, but one example in the unit economics is my student loans right now. So I've got, I've got student loans. I could pay off those student loans right now if I wanted to. My student loan interest rate is under 1%. And um, through my job, I, they, they have a student loan repayment program. So it's profitable for me, yeah, exactly. effectively, it's... right? It's, so look, looking at the unit economics of this stuff um, is important. But I do think what you just said around, you know, if you, if you take my confident rate of return, and then what you just stated around the expected rate of return over the next 10 years, like you have to see where you're invested, right? And how confident are you in that amount? So personal decision in the end. Yeah. Right? Well, and then the last thing I'd add is like, so let's just hypothetically say, I'm confident I can make 10% in investments for the next 10 years and my mortgage is 3%. It seems like a slam dunk. It seems like an absolute slam dunk to take the money that you would use to pay down your house to invest. But what often happens to people, let's say that's an extra 500 bucks a month, is you see that extra 500 bucks a month sitting in your account and you go spend it. So you don't make the 10% return that you hypothetically could. You actually just end up with more stuff. And so if you're that type of person, and I think all of us have a component of that type of person in us, then the forced savings, I'll call it, that comes with paying down your mortgage and not having that 500 bucks show up in your account might actually put you in a better financial position 10 years from now, even though the opportunity cost is greater. So there's a lot to this question. You're spitting wisdom, man. Great. Well, I think that's a wrap, right? That's a wrap. Uh, hey, I really enjoyed this, Diggles. Thanks so much. Wish yeah, me luck definitely. in Dallas. And please, please subscribe and rate the podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>